Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. Okay, go to Twitter land. You guys cool with that? We're on Twitter the rest of the day, so, you know, let's talk about it now. (laughs) So back in 2020, there was a huge hack on Twitter. A group of people, including a Florida teenager, hacked Twitter, hacked a bunch of big accounts, including Coindesk, former President Barack Obama, uh, President-elect Joe Biden. I don't think he was President-elect at the time, but presidential nominee Joe Biden at the time. A bunch of other people. And they did the classic ploy, send me one Bitcoin, and I will send you two back. They hacked all these accounts, which they could have made a lot of money. They ended up only making a few hundred thousand dollars. But that doesn't mean that the arm of the law wasn't going to come and slam down on them. And as of this morning, we have new information that a five-year sentence was passed for one of the people involved with this, uh, that being a British man named Joseph O'Connor. The prior Florida teenager is also involved with this. It's already been serving prison time. There's at least two or three other members of this whole group uh, that hacked Twitter by basically socially engineering Twitter, and then ran off with this whole scheme. This really brought Bitcoin into the limelight, I'd say. Back in 2020, we were sort of entering into a bull market phase, and all of a sudden, all these huge Twitter accounts were hacked and had the word Bitcoin on them. Uh, So it was, I think, a a pretty important moment in Bitcoin's history. It's wild to go back and look at this three or four years later. Zach, what's your take? Don't do crimes, people. Don't do crimes. (laughs) Crimes rarely pay, and this one certainly didn't. Crimes, bad. Don't hack people. Also, the social engineering stuff. I think that's really the most interesting thing to me from this whole story. They literally like called up Twitter employees and said, we're IT support. Can you like give us the secret code? And And it worked. Like There's all these sort of social engineering attack vectors that are very relevant to the Web2 hacking conversation, but absolutely hyper-relevant to the Web3 and crypto hacking conversation as well. We talk about the Lazarus group, right? The North Korean hackers who go so far as to like get hired into uh, organizations or pose as you know, job seekers to take uh, interviews to get sensitive information. So all these sort of like social engineering hacks, you got to watch out for those. There's a lot of scary things. I remember doing a panel at ETH Denver this year where it was like only the paranoid survive. And it was all these like, uh, Web3 auditing firms and OPSEC people 
who we're talking about sort of the social engineering attack surface area is always quite high and is something that I think is often under discussed and underappreciated relative to some of the more like technical ways that people can hack into and steal funds. So anyway, that one always stands out to me because at the time it was like, how did they do this? Like, was like the master key compromised? And like, no, it was just like social engineering uh, ways to get into these systems and use hacked accounts for what ultimately may have not been a very good scheme. But that's my thoughts. I don't know. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's important to continue talking about this story. Despite these people being caught and sentenced, there are still so many hacks and scams that prevail on Twitter. There are people being impersonated. And so I just, as always, when we do segments like this, just need to remind everyone, do not click on any links and don't send people money. You're not going to get more back. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Be extra vigilant. Even Will, you sent me a file the other day and I asked you what it was because I didn't know if you were hacked. And so just like even mm. your friends, be careful. If you don't know what they're sending you, be careful. And to that's be fair, I my... just don't think you knew what the file was. So that was a little different. It was different. named something strange. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I remember at the time we all thought like Twitter was like mega nuked and that people could basically just like post whatever they wanted on Twitter. Uh, in terms of like the, the people who had hacked this, there was concerns about like, maybe this could escalate and be like a national security issue, right? Like the fact that they had compromised government official accounts made people think that, you know, this could turn into something much more ugly than it ended up being. In this case, just like a run of the mill crypto scheme that you see day in and day out on Twitter. So I'm glad that didn't happen. But it is like a wild Easter egg in Bitcoin's history, I think. And good to get some closure on it. Yeah. Zach. It's like a nice, it's like a nice deep cut in Bitcoin's history. I kind of want like the other like top five deep cuts from Will Foxley and like other <laughs> sort of uh, foundational moments in mm. uh, in Bitcoin history that may be overlooked because I wouldn't put this up there in the echelon. But now that I think about it, like yeah, it was kind of a big moment where all of a sudden, again in the in the long history of Bitcoin being associated with nefarious deeds, it was certainly like one of those one of those kind of more trivial ones. Maybe but one day, one day for another history corner. Anyway. Crime don't pay. That's really all we got to say about this one, I think. Jen, you got any other last uh, last words, last insights? No, I will just remind you that if we ever had a crime ring, I'm going to be the first to tell all the information. So don't include what? me. I don't want to be involved in crime. <laughs> snitches okay. get... Don't include wait, me. Snitches get... Yeah, snitches just get don't stitches, include me. Jen. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Hash crime <laughs> crew, you're not invited. Will, let's talk. <laughs> Tuesday's top story. Fidelity preparing to apply for a spot Bitcoin ETF as well. A source tells the block. Bitcoin pumped a little bit on the news, it should be noted. And this is a continuation of a recent trend where big old financial institutions are trying to get a spot Bitcoin ETF into the hands of US consumers. Really interesting to see a lot of momentum around the Bitcoin ETF when. Previously, that conversation had been quite dead. What do they know? What do they know about the particular timing here? That really is the interesting thing. I'm going to throw it straight to Will. I saw him raising his hands in jubilation now that the institutions <laughs> yeah. are back on the Bitcoin ETF train. Let's go. Train. Let's go. Fidelity is here. What do you think, Will? I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Fidelity has $4.5 trillion of assets under management. This, of course, follows up on the BlackRock ETF, which Coindesk broke. And then a few other companies last week re-upped 
their ETF bids, which have been swatted down left and right by the SEC over the last few years. But it is ETF season, and we are pumping on the news. We love that. Bitcoin's over 30K. I think it is, right? It's over 30K. Pretty sure it is. That's great news, guys. Everyone should be all smiles today. Fidelity itself has been a longtime Bitcoin proponent, or at least interested in Bitcoin. A lot of like the uh, more prominent people in the Bitcoin space actually came from Fidelity, uh, like Amanda Fabiano, who now runs mining over at Galaxy Digital, or Nick Carter, who's now an investor at Castle Island Ventures. A uh, few other people, the Fidelity gang, as they're well known. So Fidelity throwing their hat into the ring would not surprise me. Now, to the media side of this, this is a source, right? So we have one loan source from the block, similar to the Coindesk article, right? Where Coindesk had a few sources and was able to put this together. So I'm interested to see, one, if this is confirmed, which as of right now, we do not have any confirmation or any comment from Fidelity. And two, later, how this comes out, right? Like who's the partner or who's the person who sort of leaked this? Oftentimes, we never find out who this is. Maybe a few years later, we do find out. Uh, it's whispered in circles. But normally, people who have a financial incentive are the ones who are leaking this information. So we'll see what happens there. Jen? Yeah, so Fidelity is also one of the investors in EDX markets. That's the exchange that launched, I think it was last week. They have Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash available for institutional investors. And the markets have just really been reacting to this like very institutional news. Like I said yesterday, now that Fidelity's thrown their hat in the ring, I, you just have to feel like somebody knows something the rest of us don't. So Fidelity has applied for an ETF before. I believe that some of the other players that filed after uh, BlackRock also have filed before. And now we have them filing the second time right after BlackRock files. It just feels very bullish. But then again, that's just a feeling. There is no information to back any of that up. It's very possible that the SEC does not let these applications go through. I love what's happening in the markets. I love the conversations that this is spurring. So I hope it happens. Our um, markets guest on First Mover this morning said that he predicts at the next bull cycle to start if one of the ETFs does get approved. Um, he was saying if it does get approved, he's thinking that Bitcoin will hit $40,000 by the end of the year. I think all of the bullish people uh, probably are sharing similar sentiment, but I hate to be the Debbie Downer. I think it's important to zoom out and look at what's going on in the macro environment before we say the next bull cycle is coming because all of these ETFs are being filed. And the last thing I will say before I hand this off to you uh, again, Will, is Canada has had an ETF for a really long time. I need to say it every time, you know, we've been there in Canada. And so maybe that's why I can share a dance with you, but maybe I'm not that excited. We're not interested in the Canada shilling this morning. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, nope. we want to talk about no, Bitcoin. Okay, really quick, I want to go over to Eric Alcunas. I think I just butchered his last name, but he's an ETF reporter over at Bloomberg. He's sort of been covering this whole space, right? Because normally ETFs are pretty boring. It's like, oh, congrats, you raised like a half percentage point today. That's basically what they're covering. But when a Bitcoin ETF comes to town, it gets really exciting because you can interact with crypto Twitter. And he's been talking about it for quite a little bit because of what happened with CoinDesk breaking the news about the BlackRock ETF. Right now, he's noticing that there might be a higher percentage chance that a Bitcoin ETF does go through because of the litigation between Grayscale and the SEC. Grayscale has been suing the SEC, trying to allow a conversion of its trust into an ETF. And after oral hearings and arguments, uh, the Bloomberg team assigned a 70% chance that that ETF does go through because of the courts. 
now with this information that Fidelity and BlackRock and others are pushing forward, he's thinking that you might see a chance that the SEC backpedals on their basically their uh, their argument with Grayscale by allowing one of these other ETFs to go through, which is really interesting anecdote here. Like if that does happen, that would be pretty fascinating to see the SEC be like, okay, we don't care about this argument in court anymore because we're just going to let these other ETFs slide through and then the whole market opens up all at once. So that is one thing to keep an eye on. Zach? Yeah. And it becomes sort of like a loss in name only, right? It's a way for the SEC to save face on the grayscale suit. Because, you know, him, again, Bloomberg ETF analysts, they do this all the time. They say there's like a 70% shot that the grayscale, the grayscale wins its feud with the SEC. If the SEC can act and say, okay, well, we've approved a Bitcoin ETF. This point is moot. It doesn't really become like a loss in court in a way that could tarnish maybe the political reputation of Gary Gensler, who seems to have greater aspirations. I think with the Fidelity one, and obviously this detail is not yet known, but it really comes down to this uh, market surveillance sharing agreement, right? The surveillance sharing agreement with the BlackRock application is really key for assuaging a lot of the SEC's data concerns around spot Bitcoin price manipulation. If the Fidelity application has some similar language about surveillance sharing, I think that could be a deciding factor as to which one gets approved and which ones continue to languish. So it's going to be interesting to see, I guess, when Fidelity comes out or if this application gets filed later today or in the coming, coming days, what the specifics are such that we have a better understanding of which of this new crop of applications is most likely to win approval. So we'll have to see what happens. But yeah, interesting to see another big, big name come into the space with this application. Wednesday's top story. Michael Saylor, this guy, this guy, this guy, he loves one thing in this world and it's Bitcoin. His company, MicroStrategy, now holds $4.6 billion worth of Bitcoin. That could be significantly larger should the price continue to grow. That's about 12,000 more Bitcoins than it was in the last two months. And man, this story just keeps on happening. It's deja vu. You wake up, Michael Saylor bought a bunch of Bitcoin from MicroStrategy. It's just sitting there in a big, giant Scrooge McDuck-style pool for him to dive in at will. Let's talk about this thing. Jen, what do you think? MicroStrategy, the conviction is not waning. They're still here. They're still buying more Bitcoins. What do you think? We need that Scrooge McDuck image just every time we talk about MicroStrategy's Bitcoin bags. I think it would be a great addition to the show. So this is uh, MicroStrategy's largest purchase since prices peaked in 2021. I think it's just like insane that we talk about Michael Saylor at least once a month when he's saying, you know, maybe MicroStrategy is looking into using the technology behind Bitcoin, or they filed an SEC filing and we've learned that he's bought up so much more Bitcoin. My mouth was just moving with no words because I can't even quote the amount of Bitcoin he has because he has so, so much. I think it was two weeks ago we talked um, about Saylor reacting to the SEC lawsuits against Coinbase and Binance. And he said that this just reaffirmed that the industry should double down on Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't get caught up in all of this regulatory hoopla we have going on here in North America. And I think Michael Saylor is just putting his money where his mouth is. I said on the show before, you know, when Michael Saylor uh, moved into the chairman role and away from the CEO role. I wasn't sure that we would continue to see MicroStrategy double down on this strategy, but they continue to and good for them. I look forward to the day when we see other news 
come out of MicroStrategy, maybe some development in, in some product they're working on. I guess I'll just have to hold on until that day comes. Will, what do you think? Yeah, a few thoughts on this. One, seems like the purchase price of this pretty advantageous. Bitcoin has been going up and they purchased this on the rise, but their average Bitcoin purchase price over the years is now lower than the price of Bitcoin as of right now. I believe their average purchase entry price is around $29,000. Average price of Bitcoin right now is around 30K, right? So they're barely in the green, which is nice because for a while there, they were just completely in the red, right? It was a, it was a tough spot to be in. Second part about this, this was paid for by shares. They issued more shares and they were able to purchase Bitcoin by selling those shares onto the open market. Sort of leans into like this whole idea of like, what are stocks and what is the modern economy based on? Like this fiat money that can be printed. A lot of people, especially in Bitcoin circles, don't like the stocks. They don't like equities. They don't like the sort of like fiat-based economy we have because they think that it just bleeds money out through inflation. So a lot of people have looked at this and been like, this is actually a pretty solid trade because you are buying a hard asset, Bitcoin, that has a set inflation schedule that everybody knows about, that has a set supply limit. You're trading that for shares in a fiat-denominated world, right? Where uh, we don't know what fiat is going to happen. We don't know what the interest rate is going to be in a few weeks. We don't know all that. So I think that's a strong point in favor of Michael Zayer kind of staying with the Bitcoin maxi beat. On the other side, talking about all this, I am interested to see what happens in the next few weeks with the ETF thing, right? So Jen, you talked about how there's not a lot of regulatory uncertainty with Bitcoin. Well, there is when it comes to the ETF products, right? And so a lot of people have looked at what Michael Saylor has done with his stock and his company and the fact that they are purchasing so many Bitcoins. And you do see a very strong correlation between the price of Bitcoin and the price of MicroStrategy stock. Some people are saying that it's basically made itself into an ETF through the back door. We'll see if that sort of changes with more competition coming to the beat, right? If we could have a lot of these ETFs pop up at the end of the summer, well, maybe that there's more competition and buyers are leaving MicroStrategy and purchasing something else. I'm not sure. Zach? Yeah, the approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF could spell the end of like the Bitcoin proxy stock, whether that's MicroStrategy, whether that's the Bitcoin mining firms. Last bull market, we saw a lot of people just betting on Bitcoin by way of these associated stocks. And, you know, should we see a wave of spot Bitcoin ETF approvals significantly changes the calculus uh, over in the world of equity. So interesting to see, certainly at this time when it's all of a sudden like ETF is the only thing anyone's ever talking about. So to see this drop now, certainly it's inflected with a bit of different context. But hey, who knows? All right, Jen, last word on this one. Yeah, I guess I'll just note that this has been tracked and it was published on Coindesk this morning that Bitcoin has registered an average daily return of negative 2% on micro strategy buying Bitcoin news. So maybe maybe we're going to dip below 30k today, but I think it does usually bounce back. So should we short? Should we short Bitcoin on the hash? I mean, sure. Financial <laughs> advice, friends. That is straight financial advice. Thursday's top story. All right, we got some more developments with FTX. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, FTX is moving ahead with plans to restart its international exchange. CEO John J. Ray III is quoted in the article saying that the company has, quote, begun process of soliciting interested parties to the reboot of the FTX.com exchange. Sources say the company has already had early talks with investors about different structures, including possibly a joint venture. Adam, I'm going to kick this one off to you. Seems like FTX 2.0 could be on the horizon. What do you make of this? 
Well, I think it makes sense uh, just from the perspective of if you were going to try to get value out of this brand, then this would be the way to do it. FTX, although it had a pretty abrupt fall from grace, really was a top exchange for a good amount of time, not necessarily for folks in the US. We weren't really allowed to use it, much to my chagrin at the time. But in hindsight, that turned out to be pretty all right. The reality, though, is that if they can reboot it, then there probably is substantial brand value to be had there. And that could wind up being a better way to recover, uh, you know, much of kind of the, the losses that appear to have been incurred here for folks who have funds trapped in there. It could also work out well for the company as well, because it likely would mean that not just kind of beyond the restarting, that there would be some type of equity allocation that would actually go to people who are owed money by the exchange. And so that could then allow the company to keep kind of more liquid capital and go from being something that just gets liquidated, you know, down to, to nothing, you know, to pay off what it can to instead continuing as a going concern, which would be better for some of the parties who are involved here. So I think that it makes sense. I think ultimately it'll be hard to pull off. Uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges around trying to reboot this type of brand in this type of situation, but it makes sense that they would try. Zach? Yeah. A lot of people who used FTX really liked the interface, right? They liked the UX. They liked the functionality. People were fans of it. Uh, whatever was going on behind the scenes wasn't evident to them. The massive dumpster fire that apparently was FTX and Alameda wasn't apparent to a lot of users who really sang the praises of the trading interface uh, at FTX. So the idea that they would kind of roll out that technology certainly makes sense. I think it shows some forward thinking by John J. Ray III. JJ Ray out here launching things uh, despite maybe some initial skepticism that this would ever come to pass. I know we expressed a lot of that skepticism on this show previously. So if this ends up being the case, I mean, yeah, hats off to him for trying to get money back into the system and pay out people who are harmed by what appears to be or what is alleged to be a pretty massive fraud. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I think the thing that I'm most interested in is which backers back FTX 2.0. Which venture funds sign up, sign their name on the line, put their name next to the FTX brand and say, you know what, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're going all in. There was some fans of this product in the past, and we think we can breathe some life into it in a way that makes sense. That to me is actually going to be the interesting thing. No names were mentioned in the piece, um, but you know, reportedly at least JJ Ray is making the rounds and saying, who wants to back this thing? I'm very curious to see who that ends up being. Jen? Yeah, the piece said that uh, parties that want to be involved must submit indication interest by the end of this week. So if you're watching and you you want to be a part of this, you have until Friday. And they also the piece also said that Figure is allegedly interested in helping FTX restart. You'll remember that they bid on the rights to Celsius, but lost to the consortium that that won that bid. So interesting. I am also very curious to see who could get behind this. But it sounds like it's probably, Adam, to your point, one of the better ways to get funds back into the hands of customers, to give customers some kind of something that can make up for what's happened over the past year with FTX. I see Will Foxley has joined us. Will, what are your thoughts on the possibility of FTX 2.0? And welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I don't know what you guys just said, so I might just be repeating it, but that's okay. I'm going to still say it with enthusiasm. I think they should relaunch FTX 2.0. I hope they do go along with this. Why? Because there's a lot of creditors involved with this. And maybe, maybe, maybe everyone who's involved here can get some money back. We've seen all the other stories of failed exchanges, right? People get like 10 cents back on the dollar, 14 cents back on the dollar. Well, what if there's a world where FTX is able to reboot itself and pay back everyone the full amount of their money in USD terms? That's a pretty fantastic ending though a very unlikely one. I know there's a lot of people on crypto Twitter who are pushing for FTX 2.0. They're like putting it in their bios. 
they're putting in like their handles saying like, we want this to occur. It's typically people who obviously lost a lot of money and are well down like the creditor stack and are unlikely to get money because all the money goes to people who had loans out to FTX or our lawyers working on the Chapter 11 case. So that's what I'm cheering for. I think there's a place for another exchange out there. It's sort of like the Ledger News yesterday with the institutional trading firm that they're trying to boot up. There is a vacuum right now. After FTX left, a lot of liquidity left the market. A lot of people didn't know where to trade. Coinbase is under siege. Binance is under siege. I think it's prime time for another person to step up and build an exchange that a lot of people can use. Did I repeat anyone's talking points? How was that? That was highly value-added. Coming in blind. That was nice. That was really good. It's professional. I will say that. I wonder how regulators are going to use the narrative. I don't I, I know there will be probably no validity to saying something like, you know, FTX failed customers. There was like massive wrongdoing behind the scenes. And here we are. FTX is back again. I can see regulators saying that. I can see them using this narrative to push regulation that maybe is not favorable to to the industry. Not saying it has any validity to it, but I can see that happening. Separately, customers have until the end of September to submit bankruptcy claims. So I just wanted to get that in there. If you were a customer of FTX, you should be receiving a link to submit your bankruptcy claim. And you have until the end of September to do that. That is my public service announcement to the people. Very nice. Thank you, Jeb. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 